I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Deep Dish Radio episode 16, Johnny Whitaker. Hey, welcome back to Deep Dish Radio. I am your host, Tim Powers. Hey, thanks for all the great comments on uh, on our various and sundry media. Uh, folks have been leaving some great comments on iTunes and on uh, our Facebook page and on Twitter. Follow us on Twitter at Deep Dish Radio. My guest today is one John Orson Whitaker Jr. You know him better as Johnny Whitaker. Uh, he was Jody on Family Affair from 1966 to 1971, and he was Johnny on the iconic Saturday morning Sid and Marty Croft show Sigmund and the Sea Monsters in 1973. And, of course, as a Missouri boy, I know very well because I watched it a thousand times. He was Tom Sawyer in the 1973 musical feature film with, uh, I believe, Jody Foster as Becky Thatcher. But let me tell you, that is just the beginning in the 90s. Uh, Johnny was well into his 30s and he found himself in a mess of substance abuse and left behind him uh, a wake of destruction. Uh, the kid who was once a Mormon missionary found himself face to face with some pretty serious addiction issues. Well, Johnny joins me today to tell the story of his recovery and his uh, redemption and what all this has to do with the governmental policy on drug use in Portugal. And you'll find all this out in just a moment. Like I said, you can follow us on Twitter at Deep Dish Radio if you like what you hear. I would appreciate comments on iTunes where you or wherever you download this show. Uh, leave a positive comment because that just helps me attract a greater audience and consequently uh, more guests, which is fantastic. If you like what you hear, I'd love to keep doing it. We don't charge anything. The show is free and you get what you pay for. So there you go. My email address is tim at deepdishradio.com. That's tim at deepdishradio.com. And uh, I would love to hear from you. If you have uh, messages for any of my guests, I'd be happy to pass them along as well. Something you want to hear, something you want to tell me, something you wish I'd just shut up and get to the show. We can certainly do that. But I would appreciate the comments and the feedback because uh, that's kind of how, uh, that's, that's the commerce here in the podcast universe. I'm having a lot of fun doing the show for you and would love to know it. Johnny Whitaker joins me right after this. It's Deep Dish Podcast. Subscribe today and tell a friend about Deep Dish Podcast. 
podcast with Tim Powers. With Tim Powers. You know, like I was telling you, John, the um, the I, I saw a, a light in your eyes when uh, when you were telling me about some of the things that you had been doing, and I started to dig a little deeper about um, you know the the treatment centers and the programs that you do. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into um, being a recovery counselor? Well, I myself am a person in long-term recovery okay. from drugs and alcohol, and that uh, started, well, <laughs> my drug and alcohol use started, um, well, let's see, 19, probably about nineteen eighty. Eight, 19, well, 1990. Okay. And I went on until uh, well, maybe 1989, 90. I went through a divorce. Oh, wow. And lost all my, um, well, lost my faith in myself. Okay. Um, and lost faith in God and everything, you know, it kind of goes along with it. Right. And um, so I <clears throat> started to indulge and did not know that I am 15% of the population, whereas 85% of the population don't have a problem. Right. But 15% of the population does have a problem with uh, addictive diseases. And... Um, with that, um, I myself continued to uh, indulge in drugs and alcohol and all of that uh, kind of stuff and uh, everything that goes along with it. Right. And um, I finally had to... Uh, well, basically, I had asked. I I got a. I went to. I was working as a uh, computer guy at CBS in Los Angeles, meeting with Les Moonves as uh, a computer consultant and computer guy. Wow! And uh, <laughs> he kind of looked at me a little strange, but hey, welcome, and you know, keep on going. Anyway, and um, I unfortunately got fired from that job um, because I didn't show up a couple of times and they were concerned why, and they didn't take a drug test, and I'm glad they didn't, Right. Um, but I was just let go. And uh, I had trouble making rent and paying the bills, but I was always getting high. And usually when you're getting high, you lose uh, the ability to pay your rent and uh, get groceries if you, especially if you are unemployed or... Right. Anyway, so I called my brother up and I said, hey, my brother's, my younger brother's Bill, and he's always had a job and been very responsible. <laughs> and I said, hey, I'm having trouble with uh, the rent this or the, uh, with food, I've paid all my other bills, but I just need some food money. Can you help me out? And he, you know, he 
had a feeling that there was a problem. Anyway, he uh, said, I won't give you any money, but I'll take you to the grocery store. And so I, we went to the grocery store and got a uh, uh, about $100 worth of uh, food and put the food away. And I thanked my brother, gave him a hug, and my sister-in-law at the time. And uh, the next day I got a residual check for $110. Wow. <laughs> well, a normal person and a person who is thinking on all, you know, we're, all pistons are, are firing correctly right. would say, hey, Bill, you know, thank you so much for helping me out. Here you go. Here is a hundred bucks and I got 10 bucks to spend on whatever, or give him 110 bucks. I mean, that's what normal and customary actions are right. of 85% of the population. But since I'm 15% of the population, I called Jorge instead oh, and dear. said, Jorge, the party's on. Uh, this is what I want. And I went down, met with him and, um, continued to party. It's it's interesting, um, Johnny. You're, you, I mean, you're you're talking about 1990, and you're uh, well into your 30s. Um, and having grown up in the industry that you did, you would think that there would be uh, drugs and alcohol around way way before that, and and the temptation would be there well before that. Um, well, for me, there was. No, I mean, for me, there was not in the fact that. Um, when I was working, of course, my mother or a family member was always there. Right. And I worked into my teens, into my late teens. I was, I did Mulligan Stew, which was a series pilot for NBC um, at 17 after graduating from high school early. Right. Um, but um, I... Then, um, anyway, so going back to my, you know, drug addiction, my brother, um, I call him up about three weeks or two weeks later when I am at a, um, my buddy and I go to a, a couple girls place to do what we normally would like to do with drugs and alcohol and girls. Right. And... Um, they give, they put something in the pot that was being smoked and I could not see. I was, I mean, it was good stuff, <laughs> right. I guess, but it was, I couldn't see and I got a little bit nervous and my heart was pounding and, um, you know, I was feeling uncomfortable. I think there was some PCP laced in the um, the uh, stuff, yeah. and I hadn't taken that before. But it took me to a point where I was, wow! And I drove home oh, with God. my buddy. Yeah. Um, and got home. I mean, luckily, I, it wasn't too far away, but... I got home and I called my brother and I said, Hey Bill, I don't know what I just smoked, but please call me in the morning and make sure that I'm alive because 
I don't know if I will wake up. I was, I'm a little paranoid, but I took something else so I could pass out, passed out. And of course he didn't call me because he just thought I was being weird. Okay. And I cussed him out the next day, but that was probably July, June, July, August of uh, 1997, and uh, September 12th, 1997, um, my family had an intervention and said I got to get clean and sober or else, and I signed the papers and said I would, but nothing happened on my end uh, for another couple of weeks, but my sobriety date for the date that I claim is uh, my first clean and sober day was uh, September 25th, 1997. And from that day to this, I've chosen not to take a drug or a drink for any reason whatsoever. But, um, you know, it was the, my family that had, was concerned enough and uh, had an intervention. And um, I had, at the time, three nephews who were two, three, and four. Okay. And they were my life, and I was Uncle Donut, and I would <laughs> take them to the donut shop <laughs> and let them have two donuts apiece, you know? So, I mean, everybody else would only give them one, but I gave each of them two donuts. Wow. And so... I was the cool uncle who gave him two donuts. Right. But um, anyway, um, they said I would not be able to see my nephews. I would not be able to come to any family parties. I would not be able to come to any activities in the family um, if I continued um, and that I would be basically excommunicated from the family. And my family is and was very important to me. Mm -hmm. So I said, uh, you know, I signed the papers and I didn't stay clean and sober, even though I said I would, uh, for another couple of weeks, but from that time on. And then, um, I was, uh, working in computers and doing okay. Um, doing some voiceovers, and doing okay, right. and uh, doing a little bit of acting here and there, um, doing a little bit of producing here and there, and being okay, but nothing was gelling. And a friend of mine uh, said, hey, I'm going to school to be a, a drug and alcohol counselor. A, a very close friend of mine, we had together worked with the Hispanic population in the San Fernando Valley Hmm. and uh, starting Cocaine Anonymous meetings um, in Spanish, which there had not been, and helping the the, uh, Hispanic population in the San Fernando Valley anyway. And he said, you're doing such a good job with our guys, you know, why don't you learn about the disease? And I said, ah, no, I'm too busy. And he said, BS, you're not too busy. You know, you're, you're, you're not doing what you really need to do, you know, and 
anyway, so I said, okay, I'll take, I'll take one class. So I took one class and, um, I fell in love with the, the, the instructor. He was, he is, uh, a wonderful gentleman and a wonderful educator and a person in long-term recovery. And I decided to take all the classes I could that semester, took all the classes I could the next semester. And by my third semester, I had two classes I had left and started working as a counselor. And um, I, well, actually, I'm, I, I'm sorry, I got to back up. Before I took those classes, that was in 2005. In 2003, I had started my nonprofit organization called Paso por Paso, right. which means step by step in Spanish. And that was the specifically to help the um, Spanish-speaking addict, alcoholic, find treatment and recovery in their language. And um, anyway, with that, um, two years later, I'm now, well, four years later, well, two and a half, three, three and a half years later, I am now a certified uh, drug and alcohol counselor, or what we say, um, certified, um, wait, CDS, um, what does that sound for? Anyway, I forget what that is, but CATC <laughs> is then what I became, which is Certified Addiction Treatments Counselor, and uh, now I'm a CATC too, and uh, while I was working at one of the organizations, which I'm not going to mention because I don't like them, okay, uh, but they gave me the opportunity to um, be an advocate and go to San Francisco and go to um, uh, to Sacramento and start working on advocating for individuals who have drug and alcohol problems. And I didn't realize the... I just knew that I had problems, and I knew that other people had problems, but then once I um, started hearing things and finding out that there's stupid laws that are ridiculous, and like up until uh, three years ago, if you smoked crack cocaine and were caught in New York, your sentence is 10 times longer than somebody who was caught with powdered cocaine. And, you know, those kind of things were just unheard of. Wow. Thanks, thanks war on drugs. That. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, we're not ever going to arrest our way out of the war on drugs. Right. And uh, so for the last about six years, I've been a very strong advocate for treatment and recovery. And um, what you had talked to me about earlier was the fact that every August 31st, we have um, International Overdose Awareness Day. Right. And um, Anissa Jones, who was Buffy in Family Affair, she died of a drug overdose. Um Dana Plato, whom I was her last recognized manager, 
Um, I was managing talent and uh, called her and got her a couple of jobs and was honored uh, after she passed that her family asked me if I would kind of um, help direct her memorial service. Wow. So I was, um, you know, very honored to do that. And um, then Lanny O'Grady, who was in uh, um, Eight is Enough as the old girl, she was kind of like a sister to me in the fact that her mother, Mary Grady, was my agent uh, from the time I was three years old up until, you know, uh, I was 20. Hmm. And um, when she passed away also of an overdose, um, and then um, Eric Douglas, Michael Douglas's half-brother, younger half-brother, uh, and I partied together, and unfortunately, he passed of a, of a drug overdose. So for those people and a few others, um, I walk and do the Overdose Awareness Day uh, in where we remember them. This last um, August 31st, we were in Huntington Beach at Huntington Pier and had a lot of families, and we walked from one end of the pier to the other, not very long, but we had a rally before, and then we walked to the end of the pier in remembrance of you know, those people who had passed. And uh, actually this year, um, 2016, there is a group of people who are going to be coming together, I understand. I don't know exactly all of the plans, but um, they're going to memorialize Anissa Jones, who was Buffy, and their um, get-together is going to be happening the same weekend as the uh, walk, and they are probably going to, there's about 15 of them, 15 or 20, that are getting together, and uh, big fans of Anissa Jones, and they are going to join us this year, and I'm kind of excited about that. But um, I guess I've talked a lot, (laughs) <laughs> well, it's it's your show today, Johnny. That's that's kind of why I brought you on. I knew I knew you'd have some great stories, and uh, there there's there's a lot of there's a lot of mining to do in that stuff. Um, clearly, it's it's affected your life, and I think what I'm hearing is some gratitude that, uh, for lack of a better term, you kind of dodged you dodged that bullet. You know, if uh, if that if that one if that if that lace joint had been just a little bit stronger, we may not be talking today. Or you know, any number of things exactly. could have happened. You know. I mean, if if I had not, I mean, I think my family would have found me. I'm thank goodness and thank the Lord above that my family did not find me. Unfortunately, like the police found Anissa Jones, right, which was naked alone in somebody's house in Oceanside, California. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, 
Um, but the disease of addiction is real. Um, and the disease is something that, uh, well, right now Obama is, is putting in $1.2 billion more specifically targeted to, um, uh, to help addiction. And so um, I'm working on a little deal to make sure that more people will write in and support this. Um, at the same time, I'm, I've been to Portugal. I was, I was a Mormon missionary in Portugal, uh, 1979 to 1981. Okay. And there I met a beautiful young lady who, um, after I got divorced, um, we fell in love and she had a five-year-old son and, um, we started our relationship and became a little family for a, a short while. Okay. But in the midst of it, she was, uh, working and traveling, uh, to Angola in South Africa oh. and, uh, South middle South Africa where she's from and trying to make a living for her and her son. But unfortunately things didn't work out, but I told her I would take him and gave him the choices. He wasn't going to school and he wasn't doing what he should. And I said, you've got a choice of going into the army or flying to California and living with grandma and grandpa. And, uh, he chose to go to California. Oh, wow. Uh, was there during the day after he got there, we had one of the big earthquakes, um, which kind of shook him up. <laughs> but uh, he graduated high school, graduated college at UCLA, and is now the assistant coach at uh, University of Oregon uh, women's soccer. Uh, his name is Manuel uh, uh, Martins. I was going to say Whitaker. He's not Whitaker, but he's Martin. Right. Um, and, I mean, if nothing I did in my life was worthwhile, making sure that he graduated. And in all of that, I get a, a beautiful um, daughter-in-law who is of Mexican descent. So uh, my children or my grandchildren are Portuguese, African, and Mexican. Wow. Um, and got three beautiful grandchildren who uh, uh, call me Papa John, <laughs> and uh, you know it's uh, it's a wonderful thing. I didn't have the opportunity of having my own children, but you know I uh, just surprised uh, Mane is what we call him. Uh, Mane for his 40th birthday, yeah. his mother and uh, his mother flew in from Utah, and I flew in from Los Angeles. And at one o'clock in the morning on the day that he was born, we woke him up and surprised him. <laughs> How cool! <laughs> and then the next, day, we had a nice uh, a nice family dinner with the grandkids and his mom and myself and 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 his wife and uh, it was a wonderful opportunity. But, um, you know, I 
then returned to Portugal just this last, um, and I, I've tried to keep in contact with my friends and people in Portugal, but I uh, just went back to Portugal in September of last year uh, to a uh, international conference on addiction and got some interviews, and I'm going back in March to uh, do some more research on a documentary that I'm in the midst of doing, which is on the Portuguese drug policy. What is the Portuguese drug policy? Funny you should ask. <laughs> My elevator speech. Um, in 2000, the year 2000, Portugal was suffering a epidemic of proportions that they have never seen before in opiate addiction. Basically, addicted individuals who were addicted to not just street heroin, but other opiates as well. Prescription um, opiates like or, or street opiates? Prescription opiates like Vicodin right. and, uh, you know, other drugs that are, are similar to that. Okay. And um, a doctor down in the Algarve said, this is not acceptable. And uh, basically 1% of the population had a drug problem with opiates, not counting the others who might have problems with other drugs, right. but specifically that. And uh, basically Portugal took the, <laughs> excuse me, uh, they took the negative drug problem out of the Ministry of Justice, of course, which is the police um, and the courts, mm -hmm. and moved it all to the Ministry of Health. Wow. Okay. And in doing so, they created what they call a dissuasion commission. And what that means is that you and I go into a bar, um, we're having a good time, and we see a pretty girl, and both of us like this girl, and we start fighting over her, and we've drank a little bit, had a little bit too much to drink. Um, I, being an addict, I won't say that you would or wouldn't, but um, I go ahead and start, you know, fighting you. You protect yourself. The police are called. The girl goes off with guy number three because she's tired of waiting for one of us to make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the police arrest or, you know, arrest us or at least uh, hold us for, you know, disturbing the peace and say, you know, hey, what's up? And they tell me to open up my pockets and I have two grams of cocaine. Okay. They will confiscate the cocaine and say it is, it is illegal in Portugal to have cocaine on your person. Um, but it has been decriminalized. So it's illegal to possess it, but it has been decriminalized. Much of Europe has decriminalized personal use of mind-altering substances. Everybody, of course, thinks about going to Amsterdam, where it, you know, they can go to a certain area of Amsterdam, the red light district, right. and go in shops and smoke marijuana or smoke other things and not necessarily be bothered in that area. 
okay. which continues today, is basically what, in many parts of Europe, minor drug possession, personal possession, is kind of overlooked, and they find something else to arrest them for, or to give them some kind of a minor infraction, and just say, you know, don't, don't do it openly, don't, you know, mess around. Right. But Portuguese, Portugal has put their money where their mouth is. And what they do is when you are found to have a mind-altering substance, basically, in Portugal, it is not, it is not criminal to have approximately one week's worth of a stash of your private use. Your drug of choice, whatever that may be. Your drug choice, yeah. And it can be on your person, um, and you will not be criminalized for having it. It will be um, confiscated if the police or, you know, they it is found to be on your person because it is illegal. Okay. But because it's been decriminalized, what will happen is you will get the equivalent of a parking ticket. And on the parking ticket, it says, you must make a phone call within 72 hours to the dissuasion commission. Persuasion, you want to tell somebody to do something. Dissuasion, you try to tell people not to do something. Right. So, because I'm an addict, I wait until the 71st hour and 30 minutes right. to make the call. And because I'm an addict, I wait until... I make my appointment for the last day of that 14 days. And on that day, I go before, uh, you know, I knock on the door and I don't know how many other people might be there, but I'm, you know, given an appointment. I go into a room with a mental health uh, counselor. Okay. That mental health counselor gives me a barrage of tests, talks to me about my drug use, says you were... Um, Cocaine was seized from you, and I want to tell you a little bit about cocaine. These are the detriments to your body. This is what it does to your liver. This is what it does to your brain. These are things that we think that you should not do. I've taken a look at the tests that I gave you, and you know these are some other drugs and some other things that I think you need to be aware of. And um, we here in Portugal are concerned about you know, all of this, but let's now go before the magistrate, see what the magistrate has to say. We go before a magistrate, and on my little docket, I've got a number one to ten, Okay. basically. If I'm one to three, I go before the magistrate, and the magistrate, by the way, is a uh, psychiatrist or a psychologist. And... If it's a one to three, he says, get out of here, kid, you bother me. You're, you know, using drugs in Portugal. You shouldn't do it. Please don't do it. Uh, and if you're going to do it, do it within the confines of your own home and don't take it outside and, you know, just be appropriate with it. Okay. If I am a four to six, the, the magistrate along with the mental health professional says, you know what, it looks like you may have a problem with substances. If that's the case, I highly suggest that you get some help. These are state-run treatment programs. 
that you are welcome to go to, uh, day program, overnight program, inpatient, outpatient, um, medically assisted treatment, whatever the case may be, these are some options that are open to you. Which would you like? And you can refuse all of them. Um, if I am a 7 to 10, then they say, hey, my friend, you are a damn addict, and you need to get some help. And these are the places that we'll send you. These are the places that we'll pay for. These are the places that we'll support and, you know, that we can help you with. Um, you know, but you make the decision. You are never forced to go to treatment. In the last 14 years, drug-related crimes have gone down by 50%. Hmm. In the last 14 years, um, HIV infection has gone down by 75% because they've also put in a needle exchange program as well. And if you do go before the uh, Dissuasion Commission and you have a major problem, one of the things here in the United States which is required is that anyone who is found to have a drug or alcohol problem must go through um, a... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The traditional 12-step, right? Well, not necessarily 12-step, but that's always supported. And, okay. you know, I always support 12-step recovery, and I am a person in 12-step recovery myself. But um, it is also... By, Stated by the law is you have to have education on STDs, sexually transmitted diseases, right. and other things. Because many times under the influence, we as addicts and alcoholics, certain substances make certain parts of the body feel things differently than um, normally. Right. And so, and, and um, your judgment's impaired a little bit, I would imagine. Judgment is very impaired, yeah. and when one's judgment is impaired, one may, and especially addicts and alcoholics, engage in sexual behavior that is not always safe. So what they do have in Portugal is make sure that when somebody, you know, if you come and you have a problem, you can ask them to get 
a physical and a medical doctor and, and be checked out. And, uh, you know, individuals who are opiate addicts right. many times have um, abscesses on their bodies, which are, you know, pus- pustule right. um, growths that happen when somebody just is shooting dope and shooting the wrong place or shooting the wrong, um, you know, area. Anyway, in this dissuasion commission, those individuals have been seen and have been given the help that they need. In the United States and in the state of California specifically, well, I just finished working one full year at um, California State Prison in Lancaster as a re-entry counselor. Wow. So I've seen where and what happens to addicts when, you know, they go off the deep end. And the um, Lancaster State Prison is a level four prison. Yeah. And in California, we have five levels, level one, two, three, four, and death row. So... In a level four prison, you're working with pretty serious criminals, most all of which have had um, serious uh, cases with uh, armed robbery, um, usually the use of force, and not, you know, non-threatening, non-what we call for Proposition um, AB 109 here in California, um, non-serious, non-sexual, and non-violent drug-related crimes. That's when we were getting a lot of our, our people out of the prisons when two years ago the California prisons were 175% capacity. Yeah. And the state of California was fined for arresting and housing so many prisoners. But for you and me, uh, you're a California state resident, right? That's correct. And uh, you and me, well, you and I, we pay... $63,000 a year per inmate per year to house them. So it's a profit center for the state. Absolutely. Okay. And, uh, you know, they get their federal grants and their federal monies and then take our state taxes and raise them so that we can house more, more criminals. I mean, Definitely, I am not for releasing criminals into the general population, but I am not and am definitely for the prison reform, getting the people out of prison who don't need to be there um, for low-level minor drug offenses. Right. I also have low-level diabetes. If I have... Um, more than three pieces of chocolate in a day, that could be dangerous to my health, but I'm not going to be arrested for it. 
But if I happen to be a drug addict, and in order to just stay well, I have to shoot some heroin, then I can be arrested for that. And, you know, that is what I work for and what I try to do to help people recognize that I am not a bad person because I'm an addict. I am a sick person, and I need to get well. And the only place that we found that people who are sick can get well are in treatment centers to learn about disease, learn about why you do what you do. If you have diabetes, you are given education classes so that you know what is bad for you and what you should do, that you should get more exercise, that you should, you know, how the pancreas creates the insulin and what it does and how you can raise your insulin or lower your insulin and what you've done because your liver is fatty is, you know, you've messed up that insulin balance, so you have to take medication so that it's right. Sure. Um, The same thing happens when somebody has a disease of addiction. Uh, You need to, number one, stop the addiction and help them stop. Now, if you are an alcoholic, uh, a benzo addict, you know, benzodiazepines, which is like um, uh, Xanax or anything that has a, a PAM at the middle, beginning or end of the lorazepam or whatever, right. those are benzo. And then any opiates, and opiates are uh, anything that has, uh, you know, Vicodin, uh, Percocet, well, painkillers, you know, stuff like that. Percocet, painkillers and all of those um, are mostly the things that you have to watch out for. Anyway, with those three, if you are an addict and you stop immediately without any kind of detox, you can, depending on the, the severity of your addiction, you can be, you can die. Um, you can go into cardiac arrest, you can go into seizures, and all of that. So if you are addicted to alcohol, addicted to painkillers, addicted to um, benzodiazepine, you need a detox. So, you know, get medical help. I, unfortunately, just liked crack, meth, uh, speed, cocaine, um, marijuana, and alcohol, not too much, just enough to bring me down so I could go back up. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I didn't need a detox. But the first thing that we need to do is to help them stop using. And um, because what happens is once we start using the brain says, I want more. But if we stop that first drink, drug, or uh, shot, then, you know, that's three-quarters of the battle. And then we teach individuals why they need to stop and what it does, and that for 15% of the population, we have a problem when it comes to drugs and alcohol. 85% 85% of the population on their third or fourth drink will
well vomit or pass out. For Irish people like me, third or fourth drink, it brings it on, yep. baby. You know? Yep. Um, and that, and not all Irish people have an, have an addiction problem, so that's not necessarily the case. But we are more, uh, the propensity of, of those of Irish descent, those of uh, Native American descent, um, those of indigenous peoples descent, um, African descent, um, those of us with those kinds of family backgrounds have a, a higher propensity for drug and alcohol use. So you have to be careful. But um, I I guess, as you can tell, I am passionate about... <laughs> That's why I called you, Johnny. That's why I called you. Um, this stuff, you know, I... Um, I'm and I've been all over the world um, trying to help, not all over the world, but to Portugal, uh, Mexico, and uh, the Dominican Republic, and um, some other places, trying to get the message out that addiction and addictive disease is not a dirty word. You know, we are not bad people. We are good people who have a bad disease. You know, that's kind of when you talked about uh, Portugal, that it brought the question in my mind. You know, there's there's uh, the fact of the matter is there's a social stigma attached to um, to addiction in American culture. You've said it a couple of times. I'm not a bad person. I'm sick. And but the conventional wisdom, uh, in fact, in Sacramento and Washington D.C. is well, yeah, you are bad, so we're going to throw you in jail. Um, what did the Portuguese laws do for the social, um, uh, the the social contract regarding addiction? Basically, um, the only people who are put through the criminal process are those who are sellers of the drugs. Um, so the traffickers, those that are that have more than a week's stash on their person, or when they find more than a week's um, supply of drugs, they are then seized, and those individuals are then um, criminalized and follow through to whatever the courts and whatever is being told to them, you know, through the regular court process. Individuals who have a drug or alcohol problem, who are found to be guilty of minor infractions um, and drugs are found on their person or, you know, they've had some minor infractions, uh, you know, prostitution, um, you know, fights, um, and other situations right. where individuals then uh, detained. Most of the time, and that's what I'm going back to Portugal is to kind of follow up and get the correct information, and why my my documentary is so important is to find out the truth behind it, but basically from what I have gleaned and what I have learned and what I've read is that 
those individuals, um, if their primary offense or their primary problem is drug-related, then they are looked at as individuals who are sick and their primary problem is the addiction, they may still have to go through the court system for their secondary offense, right. but they will be looked at differently with the primary offense being that of using mind-altering substances and getting that out of the way. Wow. The other thing that is so good about Portugal, well, two other things, is number one, all throughout um, Europe, if a person is sick and wants to get treatment, in government um, treatment centers, you know, most medicine uh, or uh, in the European Union, there is socialized medicine, basically. Yeah. So... Um, if anyone is looking to get into treatment in any country in the European Union, most of the time it is two to three months of a waiting list to get in. Portugal has put it down to 72 hours. Wow. If somebody really wants to get into treatment and really has a desire to get clean and sober, they can get treatment within 72 hours. So that's one of the ways that Portugal has put their money where their mouth is. Um, and then the other most important part to, this, to the puzzle is that it has become a non-political issue. In 14 years, there have been three or four changes in the government through their four-year presidential and, you know, um, representative government and parliament, it has changed four times. And except for the first change after um, the Portuguese drug policy went into effect, um, it has become a non-issue. It is not even a... Uh, uh, it's not discussed anymore in Parliament. It's not broke. We're not going to fix it. It's working well. It is positive. Um, And the thing that was so beautiful to me when I went to Portugal and I got a taxi uh, to the conference that I was going to, I just happened to mention, and not saying that um, cab drivers are not intelligent, but you know, you think of a cab driver as middle to, to middle lower class individuals. Just your average working, guy, right? You know, hard, you know, average Joe working hard. Um, and I just said, what do you think of the Portuguese? Well, I speak fluent Portuguese, <laughs> so I didn't say in English. I said, yeah, I said it in Portuguese. What do you think of the Portuguese drug policy? And he says, it's the best thing that's happened in this country in a long time. He said, people who have a drug problem are sick people and need help. And that's all there is to it. And it was like so refreshing to know that 
drug addicts in Portugal are not looked at as being evil people, as being people who don't have um, the ability to stop doing something. They're looked at as sick people that are in need of help. And that was such a, a wonderful blessing for me to see and, and to be a part of. Wow. It, it's probably, you'll cover it in the documentary, I'm sure. But there had to be some, this is a real progressive law that happened 14 years ago in Portugal. Uh, two things immediately come to mind. One, what was the what was the history leading up to it and what kind of uh, pushback was there from the from the public in Portugal and two if this is so progressive and so powerful why don't why doesn't every American know about this and who suppressed it <laughs> well um, to question number one I I don't know that answer specifically um, I know that what they started to do is they took the drug problem out of the Ministry of Justice and put it in the prime minister's hands and the prime minister and his group realized that they're not the ones that you know they tried to get the ministry of health to help them and they said you know what this is not a criminal problem right. from what you're telling me and you know how we have gotten about this we need to put this in the ministry of health and have the ministry of health organize and do this um, Dr. João Goulão, and that's spelled J-O-A-O, which is the translation of John in Portuguese. Okay. Uh, and Goulão is G-U-L-L-A-O, and there's a tilde over the A in both João and Goulão. But um, he is the kind of the minister of the, like the drugs are in the United States. That's his position in Portugal. And he was the one who started all of this. And I have an interview with him um, that is absolutely wonderful. It's all in Portuguese, so I have to translate it. And all of it will not be in the documentary, but I will probably have most of it available in the shorts after for those who are interested in, in uh, his history. Uh, he gave me a whole history of, of how it basically happened, and that's kind of what, you know, there, there was a lot of pushback. There was a lot of individuals who were fighting it, but overall, the statistics and the information that he was able to give to them, um, I mean, I, there was one young lady who was also in the, the documentary uh, who was vehemently against it. And she's a 12-stepper, um, and her organization supports the 12-step process. And realizing that just 12-step doesn't always work for everybody. Um, I, I believe that if you really work the 12-step program, it can work for everybody. Mm -hmm. But some people are, are against it or, or, or are not supportive of it, and that's perfectly fine. And we should be able to have choices of other modicums of, of treatment and recovery and support. And um, anyway, after a while, now she's one of the biggest advocates of, of the process, that it is a positive process. It's a positive 
thing, and we need to get people here or all over the world to look at Portugal as a model of treatment for people who have problems. I mean, right now in Gloucester, Massachusetts, the um, chief of police in Gloucester has, because uh, they were having a problem with uh, young people and addiction, and he said, anybody who has a drug problem in Gloucester, if you want to talk to me or talk to a, a person, come to us, admit that you have a problem, and we, as the police, will do our best to find you treatment. Now, and, you know, if you're afraid... If you're afraid of being arrested because you're using, come to us before we come to you right. and say, I got a problem. And um, that program has received some big accolades. I don't have the names of everybody right here in front of me, but sure. um, he was honored this past um uh, October, we had a big rally for uh, justice in Washington, D.C. that I attended, uh, which was uh, Faces um, faces of Addiction, and um, just really important to recognize the need for treatment and recovery. And he was one of the people who was honored because of the innova innovative way that he is helping the addict alcoholic. That's a, an interesting way to go about it. Um, now, let me ask you, as a uh, as an addict, if you, uh, thinking about your time when you were actively using and someone came to you with this proposal, um, is it something that you would have taken advantage of? Um, well, once my family found out about my using, I there's there's a saying that that many of us who have been found guilty by um, you know they say that the police finally caught me and I finally turned myself in to the police, even though I was on a, on a chase in my car for an hour. But when I finally accepted the fact that there's nowhere else to go, I had to give in. And so, you know, the police are looked at as kind of um, saviors okay. to a certain extent, okay. to where they say, you know, thank you for saving me from myself. And... Um, Thank you for making me have to save myself. So, in my opinion, when somebody is an addict and they are to that point where they are tired of being sick and tired and having that same addictive behavior day after day, that they come to their senses and... Um, you know, unfortunately, an addict many times must find a bottom. And more times than not, that bottom is 
at the end. I mean, I we we have the joke that somebody who's allergic to strawberries stops eating strawberries, and because if they don't, they break out in hives or they break out in itching and all of that. Right. Addict alcoholics, we break out in handcuffs. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> and in order for us to um come to our senses, sometimes it takes an intervention and that we need to find some kind of a bottom and that many times we're waiting to be found out. You know, yeah. we're, we continue to do what we do, but in the back of our mind it is, please catch me, please catch me. Um, I don't want to do this, but I don't know how to do it on my own. Please catch me. And, um, you know, it's at that time that we do our best to find them. And in Portugal and in Gloucester, Massachusetts, you can say, you know what, please find me, I'm ready. Um, nobody wants to give their children up. Nobody doesn't wants to buy drugs instead of paying for their rent. Um, you know, they don't want to get kicked out, but the addictive brain is so crazy yeah. that it doesn't know the difference. Wow. And uh, it's kind of like a bulldog that once it clamps on to something, it won't ever let go until, you know, it is forced off either by, you know, um, even, if we, even with a beating you know, I've got a friend, and he has a, a bulldog, and he's got a little hand-held uh, kind of uh, rag that he's made, and he can walk the dog around the room holding it up. Uh, yeah. You know, he's got a 40-pound dog whose jaws are clenched onto this rag and will not let go. And that's kind of the way it is with the addictive brain, that once we get it, we just, it, it, it locks in and doesn't let go unless there are consequences, um, and the consequences get bad enough to where we have to, um, we have to relinquish the drug, we have to relinquish, you know, and that's one of the, the statements that we do in the 12-step program, which is, is, you know, we have to let go and let God or let go and let the program lead us and guide us because um, on our own we cannot do it. Right. And have somebody else give us the support and the help. I mean, you know, we have sponsors in the 12-step program, which are just regular Joes who've been through the same problem, but enough to the point where they are going to help out. And, you know, help you go through the same thing that, that you've just found yourself in. Wow. So, uh, John, when can, we, when can we expect to see the documentary? Do you have a, a timeline? Well, um, unfortunately, I'm about six months behind my original timeline. Okay. I was hoping to have it ready for uh, release in uh, January of 2017. Okay. Um, I will be having a... Um, not GoFundMe, but something like that. Um, 
but you can always go to johnnywhitaker.com, and I should have updates. Um, I've just started a new nonprofit specifically for um, uh, supporting film and educating the public on the addicting and the addictive process. Uh, and it's called im24heart.org. Okay. And uh, the website isn't up yet, but if you go to uh, johnnywhitaker.com, I will have information there uh, about my other organizations that I am a part of and uh, things that you can. You can be my, my Facebook fan. I don't, uh, my friends on Facebook, I try to keep them as people who, I've worked with or that, you know, like yourself, that can be uh, supportive of the things that I do. Right. Um, and then I have a fan page, and I also have Twitikers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> who are my uh, my Twitter fans, are Twitikers, and um, that's at John O. Whitaker Jr., Wow, that's uh, okay. So there you go. If you, if you wanna if you wanna learn more about John, that's that's where you go. Um, now, yeah. you, we, you know we've touched on a lot of stuff, Johnny. And I will tell you, you and I could probably talk for hours because there's a lot of places I would love to go and and learn some more. But we're running out of time. So yeah, no one of the things that we've we've touched on. I mean, obviously we're gonna touch somebody. So if you're listening to this show right now and you are uh, you're experiencing uh, issues with addiction, Johnny, where what kind of resources would you direct someone to who's who's uh, you know listened to this show and said, "Man, I'm ready for some help." Well, if they're in the Los Angeles area, you know, um, or in most any county in the United States, and, and there's some that aren't set up yet. But you can dial 211, and that's usually county services. And it is usually the counties that have access to the treatment facilities and say, I'm looking for support and treatment. Unfortunately, even with Obamacare, I, I mean, I support certain parts of Obamacare because they've made it possible to get more treatment for individuals. I'm not 100% for Obamacare, but um, again, it takes two to three to four months if somebody wants to get help um, from addiction. If you have insurance, you usually can just call your behavioral health specialist with your insurance company, and they can guide you to where you need to go. Um, if you have a problem and you don't have good insurance, um, then, you know, you can usually get outpatient services um, and a 12-step meeting. There's CA, Cocaine Anonymous. There's AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. There's Narcotics Anonymous, NA, um, you know, Type them in in the and find out where there's a local meeting of any one of those organizations, and that's aa.org, ca.org, or na.org, 
and those are national and international organizations that have free meetings that have people like myself and that are similar to me who are there to help out other people who need help. For me, it is imperative that I help the newcomer or else I don't, I don't keep my sobriety if I don't give it back. So that's what I have to do. You will encounter a lot of people like Johnny in, uh, in, in, these, in the meetings and uh, in the treatment centers. They're there to help you. So if you, if you are having a problem, open up that search browser and start looking right now. Um, Johnny, thank absolute. you. Johnny, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much. I've learned so much. I look forward to the book, or I look forward to the uh, to the uh, documentary. And uh, when you're when you see on a book, which is a guide to treatment and recovery for friends and family and parents, and uh, a parent's guide to addiction treatment and healing. And um, I'm. Uh, starting on my own memoirs, but uh, that's going to be another little while. The documentary will come out first. (laughs) Well, there you go. All right. So uh, I hope we can count on you to to come back and tell those stories when it's time and when the the, uh, fundraising, the crowd fundraising uh, starts for for those projects. I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thanks so much. this long if you are a family affair fan and you uh you tuned in just to hear johnny i've got news for you in uh, just a couple episodes i am pleased to say that kathy garver sissy will be joining us she has her autobiography her memoirs uh coming out in march of 2016 and she'd like to tell you about it and she'd like to tell me about it and i'd like to talk to her about being firestar on spider-man and his amazing friends so there you go. It's uh, it's a great show. Thank you, Johnny Whitaker, for being on uh, on the show for this episode. It was a pleasure to uh, to speak with you again. John and I had met uh, a couple years ago, and um, I was really impressed with what he told me about the things that he was involved with. So it's fantastic. Our uh, our Twitter is at Deep Dish Radio. There is a Facebook fan page if you look for Deep Dish Radio with Tim Powers, and of course, I would appreciate your comments on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. If you like the show, tell your friends. If you don't like it, this has been The Nerdist. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Now Sigmund, the sea monster, and Johnny and Scott are friends. The finest of friends that ever could be on the land or on the sea. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.